Hello, and welcome to the Retail Rundown. I'm your host, Julia Raymond-Hare, and today we are joined by my guests, Peter Cohen and Andrew Smith. Peter is the president of Peter S. Cohen and Associates, a management consulting and venture capital firm. He is also a Forbes contributor and columnist at Inc. Magazine, and he's published not one, not two, not three, but 15 books on the topic of entrepreneurship. Andrew is the co-founder of Think Uncommon, a retail consultancy helping retailers innovate. He is the co-author of the book Retail Innovation Reframed, a how-to guide to implementing innovative capability in a retail business. Peter, Andrew, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks. It's great to have you. And Peter, can you tell our listeners a little bit about your newest book? Yes. um, My newest book is called Goliath Strikes Back, and it's about how large incumbent companies are competing with upstarts and e-commerce players and covers six different industries, including consumer electronics. And so when we're talking about consumer electronics, I'm very happy that I had a chance to really investigate how Best Buy was able to reposition itself under its um, previous CEO, uh, Hubert Jolie. And now it's setting the stage for its great turnaround. And in that same chapter, I have sort of an in-depth investigation of why Circuit City went bankrupt. And it's really interesting to contrast. I love all of those points, especially because to our listeners, we're discussing Best Buy today. Electronics retailer Best Buy was in the news last week. It notified store workers it would be cutting some jobs and hours as the big boxer doubles down on its digital efforts, as Peter mentioned, um, their huge turnaround effort. And back on its November 2020 quarterly call, their CEO, Corey Berry, said the chain is evolving the way it is, quote, positioning employees to serve customers based on need, irrespective of channel Unquote. Barry said it has cross-trained 450 store associates as help chat associates, and another 5,000 are being trained to flex into digital sales if needed based on demand. That was also according to Miss Barry. Best Buy is also transforming roughly 25% of its U.S. stores into online order hubs. You may have remembered the little bit about their strategy on micro-fulfillment centers. Peter, I'll pass this to you first. What are your thoughts on Best Buy's strategy to increase its focus on digital interactions, as mentioned with the chat? Well, I think what's really clever is that Corey's predecessor, Hubert Jolie, who was a former McKinsey consultant, went in and realized that there was a big need for a turnaround. And his primary focus was on looking at the whole company from the perspective of the consumer. And also critical was the relationship between people who are interacting with consumers, their employees who work with consumers, and the consumers themselves. And what the consumers are looking for is the opportunity to compare the different electronics products they want to buy, put together a system with help from the Best Buy floor employees, and then uh, make the purchase, get a, a very low price, get the sort of internet price, and then be able to pick it up very quickly. And so when the pandemic hit, Best Buy had a competitive advantage over Amazon because of the stores. 70% of Americans live within a 15-minute drive of a Best Buy store. So they could order it online, pick it up outside the store, sometimes on the same day. And that was much more reliable delivery for the consumer. So um, it's just remarkable to me how a so-called dinosaur like Best Buy was able to become much more responsive to consumers than Amazon, which is considered to be the giant killer. It is. And thank goodness in some ways. I mean, I love my Amazon, but I also like to hear about sort of the underdog in a way coming back 
Andrew, do you have any comments on Best Buy and how they've been operating the past year? No, I, I agree entirely with Peter. To be honest, I was a little surprised. Like I look at retailers a lot and the, you know, the processes they have in place for innovation and, and their ability to change quickly. And the fact that they were able to adapt as fast as they did in 2020, I think is better than was it, you know, would have been expected. I also feel they've got some industrialization to do, though. I think like many brands, getting the experience out there was one thing, but strengthening it beyond... You know, a sticky tape and string style deployment is probably another thing. So I think they'll probably be focused on that from now. But I think it's what comes next for them in the post-pandemic world that I think will be really interesting to watch. You know, they've changed the operationalization of their stores substantially, but whether they can step up the role of stores and the role of physical stores for their brand story, I think will be really interesting. Mm-hmm. You said they have some industrialization. Is that the word you used? It was, yeah. Just essentially, you know, in 2020, when you have to move at pace, you roll out innovation fairly quickly. and a lot of the time, it means you don't get the kind of robust solutions that potentially you build over a multi-year transformational program. So, you know, I call them sticky tape and strings. Often that's, you know, it's not meant to be offensive. It's messy. That's what, you know, innovation is and it's meant to be. So, you know, the next focus for a lot of retailers at the start of 2021 is to look back at what they've built and how can they make it stronger and you know, a more clean experience and more efficient productive experience for the brand as well. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a, a great point. And also to Peter, your point about 70% of Americans living 15 minutes from a Best Buy and that really helping them during the pandemic to deliver the electronics consumers needed. If we take a bird's eye view, Best Buy was almost out of business in 2012. Do you think that they have enough momentum to really keep transforming and and compete with Amazon? Yes, there are so many things that they did when um, Uber Jolie came in in 2012, when they were in, in deep trouble. So they've really had about nine years since then, and they spent a lot of time transforming their operations and the way they treat their people. So one of the things that you were reading about before is how they're trying to cross-train employees so they can interact with consumers in the different ways that they want to interact with Best Buy, You know, whether it's uh, online through chat, ordering it online and picking it up in the store, all the different options. And I think they're also, uh, in, the, in the context of industrializing, uh, to use uh, Andrew's term, they're kind of really rethinking their supply chain and how much of the items that they're going to be giving to those consumers are physically in the store versus having to order it from a warehouse. And I think it's very interesting that something like 300 stores they've got are located near suppliers. So they can kind of have a lot of the floor space with the things that the customers are going to pick up. And those can be places where consumers can kind of reliably pick things up more quickly after they order them. So I think the interaction between not only the way they train the people and what they can do and their computer systems, all the different platforms in which they interact with consumers and the location of and design of the stores are all have to be you know, really well integrated in order for it to work smoothly. And I really think they've spent a long time doing it and they're still trying to make it better. All good points. And I wanted to ask both of you because you have retail clients. Do you think that the trend of chatbots and then SMS marketing, will that continue in a big way? I look at it from a consumer point of view. There's a lot of digitally native consumers out there that you know are the main drivers behind the uptake in, in technologies like that. And I think they're going to continue to push for it. And you know, as brands do it really well, that's going to reset expectations for consumers in every brand experience they have. So I think, yes, that there'll still continue to be that momentum. But there's also like it's it can't be at the expense of the remainder of your customer segment that's looking to use your stores or your digital assets in different ways based on their own you know comfort with both digital and physical. Not to mention physical is a really fabulous experience. You know, people still 
humans are a pack animal and we still have a craving for those experiences that we get there. So the convenience element of retail that's existed since the Istanbul bazaars will still kind of drive a value proposition that means retailers have to use those kinds of technologies to ensure that they are convenient and easy to approach. But is it the core of the story post-pandemic? I, you know, I kind of feel like it'll play a cast role with the, you know, the main stage event being some bigger experience shifts in the physical estate and, you know, the bigger digital trends like live streaming and things like that. If I had to play some bets, I think the Geek Squad, because they did pivot, we talked about Best Buy on a rundown, I don't know, probably a year ago. And I know that there was some discussion around how the team pivoted to become basically connected home experts. And they were helping a lot of people, you know, get everything connected and get the hub set up in their homes. And I think as technology becomes even more complex, I mean, (laughs) I have the Alexa, the Google Home, the Philips Hue, it's it's crazy. Well, I I just wanted to comment on that uh, whole thing about the salespeople being systems integrators for the consumer. That is a very big insight that Best Buy had when Uber Jolie came in, which was the idea that, you know, people on the floor who interact with consumers have a very important role in the company in terms of establishing a good relationship with those consumers, making sure they have a good experience, making sure that they can buy everything they want to buy um, in Best Buy and create an integrated system for them that works in their home. So this idea of them being consultants for the consumers who are buying is a critical factor. And it's really interesting in my book, I contrasted that with what happened to drive the bankruptcy of Circuit City, which was when the CEO, Philip Schoonover in 2007, decided he was going to fire 3,400 highly paid and experienced sales floor people and replace them with 2,400 hourly wage people who had no experience at all, which led to hundreds of thousands of customer complaints, leading to lots of unsold inventory, causing them to go bankrupt. So just not recognizing the importance of the salespeople on the floor and the relationship that they have with those consumers in terms of causing those consumers to come back and also buy everything they need for their home entertainment or whatever system it is from Best Buy. I mean, it's just critically important. That's such a good point, Peter. And like, if I can build on it, the idea of humans being a systems integrator, I think is a really smart way of wording it because what we've all learned over time is that if you're only in a game to cut costs, then you're in a race to the bottom and it's never going to go well for you. And the experiential side, we know that comparative to humans, technology is still learning and still is pretty terrible comparatively at upselling and cross-selling and building those relationships. So technology can kind of get you so far, but then that relationship side, the human side of what retailing is and has been its entire existence, you just lose it. And from that, you'll lose customers. So I think that's beautifully said, Peter, that whole idea of you know using humans as systems integrators to make sure your company remains human and delivers those great customer experiences. Well, I mean, another thing that really struck me, which is uh, this concept of showrooming, which is something I've done a lot. I mean, in showrooming, you go into the store, you look at the product, you decide whether you want to buy it, and then you make the actual purchase online using a cheaper price from some other vendor. And this was a huge problem for Best Buy when Hubert Jolie got there in 2012. People on the floor were telling him, this is a catastrophe for our company. And he came up with a great idea, which was, we will just match the online price. And they would match the online price. They might get a lower margin on that particular item. But because of the fact that they were talking to these systems integrators, the person would sell them other things that they needed. For example, if you buy one of those flat screen TVs, you need a table to put it on. You might need some other things to go along with it. And you would get sort of a complete purchase. And I think it's more profitable if they can sell multiple items to a consumer and kind of link them all together. 
So they were able to sort of kill the, the showrooming. They got more revenues because they were able to match that online price. So I thought that was a great. Absolutely. And that also capitalizes on, you know, humans' impatience. They want it now. And if you can get it now for the same price, why, why not? And with expertise. And I love, Peter, how you said system integrators for the consumer. That's a great, concise way to say it. So we touched on Best Buy a bit, and I was going to turn over and talk about some news that we'll all be happy to hear, which is that the reported COVID-19 cases, at least in the U.S., fell to their lowest level in nearly four months over President's Day weekend. And although we are still a ways away, a return to normalcy is seeming like it might be on the horizon. So I wanted to ask in a broad sense, what do you think the post-pandemic retail landscape will look like? We've talked a lot about this. I know it's a lot of speculation. No one has a crystal ball. But what are some things that are really standing out for you? I think for mine, like there'll be a lot of elasticity in some markets. And again, you know, I'm always worried about saying, hey, this is what consumers in retail are going to do, because it's just way too big a segment to predict behavior of the kind of that on mass set of humans. But I think in a lot of a lot of markets, like if I think of things like grocery, the experiences of buy online, pick up in store, delivery, those kinds of things that have really shot through the roof in 2020, they're probably going to be less elastic. They're probably going to kind of stay that way. I think you then have on the other end of the scale, you know, particularly as we enter a kind of K-shaped recovery that's existing as we, you know, exit, hopefully, <laughs> with the good news on the horizon, um, the COVID kind of world that we're in. The different markets are all going to see different experiences of people coming back to store, spending more than they did before to, you know, some markets where they'll be spending less or even shifting to more value-based brands, depending on the segment. So it's going to be really interesting to watch. That's for sure. I think there's a couple of contactless and the technologies around contactless in store. I think that that is a trend that's going to continue. And you've got some pretty great brands out there setting some pretty high expectations from customer experience and contactless that I think... You know, others are going to have to keep up with. And then like the data availability, personalization stuff, I think there's a lot of maturing to do there in terms of using AI and machine learning into a, you know, into a pretty human business like retail. I think there's a lot of maturing to do in, the, in the, what the technology can do. So I'm excited to see that. But for me, I think probably the number one is this, you know, we've kind of cemented the retail industry belief mindset that stores role has changed. They're not what they used to be. We can't measure them on comp sales anymore. They're a completely different value calculation now from a consumer's point of view. So we need to adapt how we use them. If we go back to our Best Buy for example as one, you know, what an incredible asset to be sitting on with those stores. 70%, I think it was Peter, within a 15-minute drive yes. with this huge floor space that they can use to not only have stock on hand so that they can ship to customers last mile real fast, real efficient, but also think of the experiences they can set up. Think of the Instagrammable moments they can create. Think of the real connections and you know, if Showfields can do it with beauty, if Lululemon can do it with activewear, if Camp can do it with toys, Best Buy has an incredible product catalog to create some amazing kind of in-store experiences that will really drive home that they are the people you go to to discover what's new and find new things. Something that, again, the internet's not great at. Well, I just think that if you look at what Best Buy is saying, what Corey was saying in the latest earnings report, they were talking about how people will not go back to the way things were in 2019. And I tend to agree with that because I think what's happened is that you'd expect the younger generations of people who are sort of iPhone native to uh, try to minimize their store experience and just kind of order something online and maybe not even bother to drive, just have somebody deliver it to their house. But what you're doing is because of the pandemic, you're exposing older generations, people who hadn't started doing this, um, now are quite used to the idea of ordering online and picking it up in the store or, or just spending a less time in the shopping in the store process. So I think they're set up to do that and set up to be flexible. 
What really strikes me as kind of interesting is that what's going to happen when people are now getting out of the house? You know, they've been cooped up for a year, two years. I don't know how long it's going to be before we can get out of the house. Um, You know, I expect something like the Roaring Twenties where people are going to get out and travel and they're going to go to restaurants and they're just going to party and, you know, do all the stuff that they've been having able to do for a couple of years. And maybe they'll stop buying so much stuff to kind of put into their man and woman caves in their, you know, houses. So I I wouldn't be that surprised if people stop buying as much stuff at a place like Best Buy and maybe they're just out there buying experiences that they couldn't get. So that'll be an interesting trend as well. See whether that happens. That's a really smart point. With 70% of millennials are looking to purchase access, not ownership. So they're they're trying to get to an experience level of something that is both an incredible story to tell and something that they can share, of course, as well. And, you know, that... I think, you know, the idea of the Roaring Twenties comeback is a fabulous image for anyone who's been cooped up in their house for a couple of years. But build on that, what retail can do to be part of that. And how can you embrace different role for your physical space that can, you know, allow people to participate in this renaissance of being set free? Yeah, mm-hmm. I think people are going to get out of their houses. I think they're just you know, thinking all this pent up energy to get out in the world. Absolutely. Um, hopefully it will happen soon. Amen. I'm ready to get out and travel. Gosh. You think about all the trips that you would have had, you know, all the conferences you would have been at, and it's a bit depressing. But like you said, Peter, there's some risk and opportunity for Best Buy. I know that people have been spending their discretionary income on electronics. Will there be a shift, at least for some cohorts, where that goes to experiences and roaring 20s is mirrored, you know, in a few years? We'll see. I wanted to touch, you said something interesting, Andrew. You said you can't measure on comp sales anymore. And are there measurements that you, Andrew or Peter, are using in your consultancies that are newer, that are replacing comp sales in terms of measuring success? It really depends on the segment. But for, you know, in the most part, you've got to look at market for a start. So stores play a really important part in the ecosystem of your brand in a marketplace. Digital, obviously, for some brands, if I use Allbirds as an example, you know, stores are there to acquire new customers and then shift them towards digital purchases for the remainder of the customer life's journey. And that's exactly how they measure their stores is, you know, acquisition of new customers. The idea of keeping, you know, store people focused on what they've been focused on for the last 10 years just doesn't make sense. And it's not a great business practice because it's not driving the behavior you want in market from your assets that are your stores. So yeah, usually it's market share, obviously customer experience up in the air. And I could debate and rant for hours on what are the best customer (laughs) experience measures and which ones are just genuinely terrible. At the end of the day, your physical estate is there to grow your brand, to tell your brand story and to acquire customers. Again, depending on your segment, how your segment potentially provide high level support. So you've just got to make sure that your metrics shift to be pointed at that. And that will enable you to grow all channels of your business. It's kind of archaic that we think, you know, humans are a machine built around efficiency. We compartmentalize and we build our organizational structures to kind of follow that level of efficiency, that compartmentalization, you know, digital that's a thing I need to grow. Here, digital, you know, human, you go lead the digital business, physical right. store person, you keep working, running your physical store business. When customers and the money that they're bringing in don't think that way. So, you know, we have to kind of work out how we can measure everyone in a new in a new way that is aligned with the way customers want to give us their money. I would like to talk about that concept because I think I've, in, in interviews that I did for my book, I really saw how important it is for executives in places that like Best Buy and Walmart to uh, make sure that there isn't a, an internal competition between the digital side of the business and the store side of the business, that they are all cooperating and have an incentive to work together to uh, improve that customer experience. So one way to do that is to tie 
their compensation to measures like how high the net promoter score is, you know, how likely that customer is to refer other friends, other people in their networks to the company, the customer retention rate, and also obviously the lifetime value of the customer. So if you maximize all those measures and people in the, in the stores are incented based on how those measures improve, then I think you get the kind of behavior you want where you're not having internal competition among the different ways of fulfilling the customer experience, but you're causing them all to work together to, to maximize those customer satisfaction and customer results uh, measures. Couldn't agree more. Plus, you also get this additional benefit of that alignment of not only KPIs, but the way you're thinking about the business and the way to grow the business means that your innovation pipeline's got less friction in it as well, because you've got less competition around, you know, if I introduce, you know, innovation thing A, that's going to impact, you know, person A's KPIs, but not person B's in a positive way. In fact, it might even be negative and therefore person B is stepping out of the innovation cycle and not helping you. They're essentially hindering you. So you get that added benefit that not only operationally are you more efficient and you're pointed towards growth from an operational standpoint, you're also going to remove friction from your innovation process. And I'll just add one other thing, which is that the culture is sort of the meta concept here. You have to fix the culture before you can start fixing the measures of performance. When a new CEO comes in, when a company is in trouble, when a company is getting close to being in trouble, when a new CEO comes in, they have to take a hard look at the culture and figure out what it needs to be in order to focus on the customer. And I think one of the things that really struck me, uh, again, from Best Buy was when Hubert Jolie came in, he was trying to find a way to connect the employees in the store to the mission of Best Buy, which was essentially to make the lives of the consumers better. And he had an example of a uh, store manager in Woburn, Mass., which is north of Massachusetts, not too far from where I live, where this person in the store, this employee said uh, to the manager, I would like to buy a house. And you know, the housing prices here were and still are pretty expensive. And so what they did was the manager gave this employee a career path where he could take on added responsibility, get more skills, and rise to the point where he could afford a house. And I think that that action, you know, that repeated over and over again, what that does is it creates a tremendous amount of identification between the employees and the mission of the company. If you can really get people emotionally aligned in that way, then forcing them to, or just asking them to act according to these key performance indicators becomes a much more natural thing to do. If they're not buying into the culture, if they don't feel that there's an alignment between the mission of the company and their lives, then they're going to be less excited about being measured on these KPIs. And I love how you said it, Peter. You said that culture is the meta concept and you have to fix the culture before you fix the measurements of performance. I think that's a key insight for any execs who are listening. And Peter and Andrew, I, I feel like we touched a little bit on, on brick and mortar strategies, especially Andrew, when you were talking about the role of the store is to acquire new customers and then in a way funnel them towards the digital channel as well. Is there any last words you want to say before we wrap up today's episode about brick and mortar strategy in 2021 and beyond? I would say like there's so many myths that exists around what physical retailing and digital retailing and blah, blah, blah. It's just retailing for a start. There's myth number one. But there are so many myths around it right now that need to be overcome so that people can start shifting their energy away from this kind of persistent negative narrative. And the physical store estate is an incredible asset that can absolutely in a lot of brands be made more efficient. But it's an incredible asset 
in explaining to customers why they should give you their money. Increasingly, we're seeing people wanting to feel good about who it is that they shop with and they need to feel emotionally connected with who they shop with. And physical store estates and the real humans that exist in them who are your best brand advocates are just an incredible way to do it. So having to yeah, not only rethink the role of stores from an operational standpoint and you know, in last mile and in acquisition and all of those kinds of you know, businessy terms, there's a real emotional brand storytelling element of the physical store estate that's incredibly important. That if you rethink what it can do, the space for you and for your customers and the, for the community around them, et cetera, and link that back to your core purpose for why you exist. doesn't have to be, you know, we donate 10% of profits to organization A. Purpose can be anything. Disney's purpose is to be, you know, the premier entertainment company in the world, and it's a massive for-profit enterprise. You know, just have a really clear, actionable purpose and then live and breathe that through the way that your stores are represented. I think there's a really healthy way for us to return physical retail to kind of, you know, the renaissance that I was talking about earlier. It's like we can have that retail renaissance of what the physical store experience can be. And I think for the kind of like, how can I turn that to be helpful? I would say most people know what to do and have ideas of that, but innovation and shifting and and increasing rate of change is not retailers' first language. Our first language is executing processes. So rethink Mm. about how your business operation needs to change, your capital allocation process needs to change, how your stores are run, your digital channels are run, et cetera, to be able to you know remove friction everywhere you possibly can so that your business can change quickly. Because that agility and ability to change at pace is kind of the biggest existential thing facing retailers right now. So come out of the what a little bit, spend a bit of time in the how and just really rethink what that store could be if it's going to truly tell your brand story and your brand purpose. There are two things that strike me that are important about the stores. First of all, there are many products where a consumer needs to have a physical contact with a physical product in order to decide whether to buy it and which one to buy. And at the same time that's happening, you need the advice of the consultative salesperson, uh, the systems integrator at Best Buy. And second of all is to speed up the delivery process. Both of those things give a retail store, a store-based retailer, a competitive advantage over somebody like Amazon, which is promising you two-day delivery, but may or may not be able to pull it off. And you don't get to have a physical interaction with the product before you buy it on Amazon. So in that sense, I think if you can make the store responsive, allow consumer to order and get delivered the right thing that they want faster than Amazon, you're going to have a competitive advantage over Amazon and you're going to see that Goliaths are fighting back. Peter, where can our listeners go if they want to go ahead and get a copy of your book? They could get it on Amazon. Wonderful. Nice nice segue from the previous point too. It's like talking about Amazon. It's like, hey, both of our books, by the way, are available on Amazon. (laughs) That's right, Andrew. And then your book as well, real quick. um, Could you go ahead and remind our listeners of what it's called? Sure. It's Retail Innovation Reframed. We wanted to create something that's helpful. So it's, you know, every chapter is full of exercises and tools to use to improve uh, innovation efficiency in your business. So check it out. Let me know what you think. Excellent. It was great to have you on the show today, Peter Cohen, president of Peter S. Cohen and Associates, and Andrew Smith, co-founder of Think Uncommon. Thanks so much, Julia. Thank you, Julia. You've been listening to the Rethink Retail podcast. If you would like to be considered as a guest on our show, apply at rethink.industries slash podcast guest. For sponsorship opportunities, send us an email at media at rethink.industries. You can help support our team at Rethink Retail by dropping us a rating and review on your iTunes podcast app. To each and every one of you, thanks so much for tuning in. Retail never sleeps. See you next week.